Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Ash, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed the conversation we had last year, so looking forward to it. Yeah, um, I know the audience did too. Uh, thousands and thousands of people tuned in when uh, we spoke about a once-in-a-generation opportunity um, and we talked about senior-secured loans. We introduced people to the idea of yield from things that they may not have heard of before, from a different type of credit. Um, we've We've spoken a lot about bonds this year because of what's happened in interest rates. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation to check in with where senior secured loans are, um, with where you're thinking they might go in the future, these types of things. But some icebreaker questions to start with, mate. What's one investment you got totally wrong? An easy one to start. <laughs> yeah. Start with a tough one. You tell me there's a few thousand people that might be listening as I bare my soul with my worst ever investment. Uh, let me start off with a bit of context. So I've never been a stock picker. My uh, background's very much in asset allocation and manager selection. And during my 10 years at Frontier Advisors, which we talked about mm. during last year's podcast. It's a firm very much uh, research focused and I tend to be quite a risk averse investor generally. So there's no, sorry to disappoint, but there's no massive blow up stories in my <laughs> in my history. Um, in fact, at Frontier as a firm, we had a philosophy that um, know what you own and how it's going to behave. And so pre-GFC, we avoided all the likes of the subprime and and um, you know, CDO squareds and yeah, highly levered, risky property and infrastructure mm. uh, investments that came uh, in sort of 07, 08 period. But one thing we did get um, blatantly wrong was in, I remember in uh, January 2008, before the worst of the GFC, there was this one trading day where equities was down 7.5% mm. in a day. And um, we were of the view that markets had overreacted at the time and presented a good buying opportunity. And so our our large industry fund clients at the time were, as a result of that um, downtick in equities, were underweight the asset class. And so we analysed all the portfolios and recommended everybody to rebalance back to strategy and equities. And that was funded by cash and and bonds at the mm-hmm. time. And and if I reflect on that, I'm a big believer in strategic asset allocation, the importance of rebalancing back to strategy in sort of normal times. But it highlights that there's certain moments in history where you need to kind of throw that mentality out the window uh, because markets sometimes in those instances are 
telling you something you don't yet know. You've got to be really considered and not be so wedded to that sort of rebalancing approach. So that was definitely a mistake at the time in retrospect as equities ended up going down 40-odd percent, mm. as we know. Was that because you had, uh, I'm assuming, some sort of rigid kind of framework that was like, you know, if this, then that, and there was no kind of override on that? Oh, we had... Um, strategic asset allocation. We had ranges around that. There was dynamic asset allocation where you get over and underweight. Mm. But um, at the time, there was just the view that uh, we did not yet appreciate what was going to occur. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think there's a lot of people that surprised at how bad things got in the GFC. But I just remember that clearly that that was was, um, acting way too early Mm. in terms of rebalancing back to strategy and equities. Mm. Another thing that people... uh, I think that people think about, like I think about this, I've been doing it for long enough now and I hear cliches or phrases or ideas that people bandy around investing circles and I think that doesn't, it's carried through time but I don't think it has any weight. So particular phrases or ideas, maybe even strategies that people tend to talk about a lot that you might Mm -hmm. disagree with. Yeah, so I, I saw a great presentation about 10 years ago at an institutional conference that I was at and it was titled something along the lines of the three most dangerous shapes in investing. Mm-hmm. And it obviously mentioned, you know, the pyramid scheme. And mm-hmm. but the one that stuck out for me was the shape of the bucket. I was talking about the way we think about buckets in investing and, and how constraining that can be. And so um, to sort of bring that to life a bit, there's there's so many investment opportunities across the spectrum that don't naturally fit in your traditional equity bond or property buckets. Um, and at the extreme there, you've got the bucketing of growth versus defensive. Mm. In my experience through my career, some of the best opportunities I've seen actually in the mid-risk category, whether that be um, you know, infrastructure or you know, as in direct infrastructure, direct mm. property, or the senior skilled loans asset class that I'm here to talk about today. And so this concept that some investors are still quite wedded to of this bucketing of quite traditional asset classes means you either miss out on good investment opportunities or you end up putting investment opportunities into categories or buckets or asset classes where they just don't belong and that's Mm. fraught with with danger and so for me it's about and we did this with our clients at frontier over time is um introducing new asset classes like alternative uh, growth, alternative defensive or floating rate credit where things like senior secured loans go into. Because at the end of the day, if you find an investment that can play a role within portfolio, it's about finding a category that it can fit into and not putting it in the in the wrong um, category. Mm. And so the other thing we're able to do, fortunately, on the institutional side was you can categorise things as partly growth, partly defensive based on the actual underlying characteristics of the investment. So how much of the returns are driven by income versus capital growth. Whereas I think one of the challenges in the wholesale or retail market in Australia is that it's typically either it's 100% growth or it's 100% defensive and nothing in between. Mm. And you've got equities, you've got bonds, you've got property. And so opportunities fall through the cracks. So there's one thing that I think investors should... um, move away from is, is the constraints put on them by bucketing. Mm, I really like that. The idea of uh, defensive alternatives, defensive growth, these, uh, sorry, alternative growth, these types of uh, frameworks tend to be more nimble and mm. tend to be, um, I guess, more opportunity bound or, or rich, I should say, because folks can then open and broaden their horizons to things that may 
seem like equity, but they behave in a very different way in a portfolio or may seem like fixed income mm. and you can get income from a different source in a different environment. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, last year we spoke about senior secured loans. It was the first time we've ever spoken about it. And i got to admit beforehand, I was like, I don't know how our community is going to receive this. And then you came on and I received this like avalanche of uh, people writing in to say that was really interesting. So I, I put all the credit on that to you, mate. Um, but I, I guess... Where are we now versus when we recorded last year? So we recorded late last year, 2022. Um, I've seen some of the presentations and the material and kept track of the funds since then. Can you tell us a little bit about senior secured loans? And we'll explain what they are in just a moment. But how have we fared in that time? Because it was, I, I think I chose the title, which is pretty, uh, pretty bold, that once <laughs> in a generation, I think that was a phrase that you had. But where are we now relative to them and what's happened in between? Yeah. Well, firstly, I, I'd thank you for last year's podcast because you know, you know your audience and you had great questions, so it made it easy for, for, for me. But yeah, so you're right. When we caught up um, in November last year, the asset class was trading at 92 cents in the dollar, which by that I mean it was, it was trading at an 8% discount to the par value. And, and it was quite obvious that rates were going to continue to rise. So it was a it was a very good entry point and opportunity. Mm. And um, to put some numbers around performance over the last uh, 12 months, the asset class has generated a positive 12% return. Mm. Uh, and But the, the good thing for investors that are not yet into the asset class is that the bulk of that has been driven by income growth. And so 9% income and about 3% from capital. So the price of the market's only gone up from 92 cents in the dollar to 95 cents in the dollar. So still trading at a 5% mm. discount to the par value. So in that sense, I still think it's a good uh, opportunity, but it's performed extremely well versus um, other asset classes over that period. Why does it still continue to trade at a discount, do you think? Uh, well, we, we can talk about that a bit more um, later in terms of the um, the defaults that are priced within the market. But time and time again in stressed environments, whether it be GFC or COVID or the current uncertainty that we have, the, the loans market tends to trade um, below fundamentals somewhat. And so that provides opportunity in terms of capital upside. And that's what's happened over the last 12 months where it's gone from 92 to 95 cents in dollar. We, we still think there's there's capital upside there because mm. we think that the, the market's priced in a recession-style default event and more defaults than we think will transpire. How about then uh, in terms of, like you, you mentioned it before, how you said like people tend to constrain themselves to you know, property growth or defensive, there's like nothing in between. The When we talk about defensive, we typically talk about government bonds or cash. How about like juxtaposed with uh, government bonds? How, do, how have senior secured loans fared in that environment? I mean, I've seen some of the bond portfolios that have struggled across the board, like the passive portfolios. Yeah. And so, yeah, so since we caught up last time, as I mentioned, uh, um, loans generated about 12% return. Over that time period, 10-year treasuries has been only slightly negative, so about negative 0.7% over that period. But that really masks the true pain that occurred prior to that. And so for the 10 months leading up to us catching up, 10-year treasuries are down nearly 20%. Mm. Uh, so, but if you look at Interestingly, both the 2022 and 2023 calendar year to date, senior secured loans has, has had exceptional performance versus not only treasuries, but also other forms of fixed rate, fixed rate debt and, um, and equities. So to put some numbers around that cumulative over that period from 
the start of 2022 to the end of September 2023. So that was that 21 month period. Senior secured loans have generated a positive return of 9.3%. Mm. During that time, high yield bonds have been about negative 6%. Uh, investment grade bonds have been about negative 15%. And 10 year treasuries has been about negative 19%. And S&P 500 has been about negative 7.5%. So massive difference. And that's par for the course in a rising rate environment and highlights the benefit of senior secured loans in helping to diversify defensive allocations. But what you can't tell from those numbers, and we've got a chart that shows this, but it's the the journey during that time period. So for senior secured Mm. loans, it's been a very stable low volatile journey to that not positive 9.3% return. Whereas all those other traditional bond and equity asset classes that, that have been negative over that period have also been highly volatile. Mm. So. I, I've seen that chart that I think I've got it in the top of my mind now that you're referencing. I've seen that it's kind of just tiptoeing up, up a hill there. Mm. Um, okay. So for folks that don't know exactly what senior secured loans are, or SSLs is the abbreviation. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just explain that to us, g- generally speaking? Like, I think maybe what people have in their mind is like senior secured loan sounds like it's a loan that has that different to like a bank loan. Like, can yeah. you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so they're, they're floating rate corporate loans that are the highest priority to be repaid and backed by the company's assets. In terms of how they complement traditional bonds like government or investment grade bonds, uh, loans provide a higher level of stable monthly income that rises as interest rates rise while investing at the safest part of the capital structure. And where they differ to some domestic credit exposures is that this asset class, which is predominantly US and Europe, um, is much more diversified by industry and issuer, far more liquid, and it's been going for over 30 years. So you know how it's likely to behave through time. But in terms of the comparison to, as you said, sort of traditional government bonds, in the case of government bonds, you're at fixed rate. Um, therefore have a lot of interest rate sensitivity, uh, otherwise termed duration, and you're investing in government risk, whereas Mm. in the case of senior skilled loans, you're investing in corporate credit risk. Mm. And are these businesses like large corporates? Are they medium-sized? Like how how, Mm. can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, it's it's a huge market. So it's to give you some numbers, the market size across the US and Europe is about US dollars, 1.8 trillion in size. There's mm. about 20 different industries, about 1,400 different issuers. And it, to give you an example, in, in our portfolio, the typical company size is about US $4 billion in enterprise value and about US $425 million in EBITDA. So yeah, these are, these are large companies, vast opportunities, set in many instances, um, well-established companies, globally recognized brands. Mm. So people probably think like, well, if they they're not using bank loans and they're not using something else. So where do they sit in this? But it, it kind of emphasizes the point that they're in Australia, they would probably be considered almost, maybe not blue chips, but on their way, you know, $4 billion. US is you know, five or $6 billion Aussie. Yeah. A pretty big company by our standards. Yeah. And so to give you some examples of names that people would be familiar with, so some examples of companies that have issued senior secured loans in the past include Burger King, Dell, Hertz, um, Callaway Golf, and some of the examples within our portfolio at the moment include American Airlines, Hilton, um, McAfee, mm. you know, from a soft, IT software perspective, Arnott's, and um, Weight Watchers and, and brands like that. So, yeah, they're, they're uh, even though they're predominantly US names, still um, global 
companies that are very well recognised in Australia and and um, you know well established, long standing businesses that have scale and and um, dominant positions within mm. their industry. Oh yeah, everyone knows things like Arnott's and mm. Hilton, these types of things. Um, how about then in terms of so we've, you obviously got you know treasuries like government bonds. How about then in terms of say like corporate bonds? Where do they where, where does that fare sitting next to the senior secured loan? Yeah, so I suppose the difference between a senior secured loan and a corporate bond would be that senior secured loans are um, at the top of the capital structure backed by the company's assets and their floating rate. Uh, in the case of a corporate bond, typically subordinated within the capital structure, so less senior, um, typically not secured against the assets of the business and, and often fixed rate. So in the case of the corporates that I'm talking about in the senior secured loan space, they have a senior secured loan piece to the capital structure and then below that is the what we call the high yield bond mm. piece, which is that typically um, fixed rate subordinated mm. piece. And so it's... um. Both can play a role within the portfolio, but the senior secured loan piece is certainly the safer part of the capital structure, and that's evidence in terms of the risk profile being a lot lower. What would a so obviously like Vesco, um, they're a fund, but obviously and there'll be a link in the show notes to this. Um, what would be the typical types of things that analysts like constructing these portfolios and the portfolio managers would look at? Like, what are the metrics or what what kind of due diligence goes into this? So a lot of people who listen to this, Ash, are very familiar with equities and discounted cash flow and these types of things. Mm. What what type of DD goes into identifying these opportunities? Yeah, it's not dissimilar to a fundamental equity manager, right? So uh, the we've got a team of thirty five private side credit professionals dedicated to this asset class, an overall team size of 100, so one of the largest managers in the segment. And the credit analyst, their bread and butter is deep fundamental company analysis. And so that includes an assessment of management, cash flow analysis, um, asset coverage, where the company sits within its industry and things like ESG considerations. But what really sets our team apart is our rock bottom spread analysis and that's a proprietary uh, analysis that we have that is also fully integrated within our uh, proprietary um, on-desk tools that basically for each individual corporate you're assessing the probability of default and the recovery on default and from that uh, we assign a, a risk rating that determines what we believe is the minimum spread you should be getting paid for that individual corporate based on the risks you're taking on. And then you're looking for opportunities where the spread in the market, mispricing opportunities where the spread in the market that you're getting is significantly higher than the minimum spread you should be getting paid for the risk of that corporate. Mm. Now, the the power of that analysis, um, which we've done for decades and um, you know is fully documented within our proprietary credit library, the power of that analysis is the ability to do relative value assessments not only within industries or within credit rating buckets, but comparing um, pr- primary new issuance versus secondary traded issuance and the overall portfolio. And so, yeah, so if you think about it versus a an equity situation, because I know probably a lot of investors are very familiar with share market portfolios, as an equity investor, you're looking to put together a concentrated portfolio of winners. Mm. 
in the case of a senior skilled loan portfolio, and we've got about 375 issues in our portfolio, you're looking to put together a highly diversified portfolio where you're avoiding the losers. Because as a credit investor, you just want to get that higher level of stable, reliable income, and then you want to get your 100% of capital back at maturity. And, and many of these loans actually pay back well before uh, maturity. But if you think about it, and that's why I, we don't like to talk, I mean, equity managers like to talk stock stories and, you know, companies that go up by you know, mm. a large amount or whatever. That's not the case in this asset class. You've got a portfolio of 375 different issuers and at the end of the day, about 98% of them, pretty boring, reliable companies that pay your regular high income and give you 100% of your capital back. And then there's 2% that may you know, default over time, but as a senior secured loan holder, you're getting great protections in that, in that situation. And so, yeah, that's where I'd sort of draw the sort of the parallel mm. with, with equities. And in this asset class, it's more about, as I said, avoiding the losers. I remember last year you said it's kind of like a, in, an inch deep, a mile wide kind of, this idea of you spreading the risk across multiple, multiple different issuers. Uh, I guess the, the question that I have then is that you mentioned default rates. Mm -hmm. Some people will think, well, if it's not a government bond, I'm worried about defaults. How do you think about that then um, across the portfolio? Like what, um, I guess what, another way to think about it, it's not just in the current portfolio, but in the slide deck that you had recently, you showed it through time as well. Yep. So can you comment on that? Yeah. So couple of the most common misconceptions in this, in this asset class is because you're investing in corporates that are rated double B or below, that somehow that's risky and people are concerned about defaults. Mm. But this is an asset class where there will be defaults and that's okay. On average, uh, through the last 22 years, the average default rate is 2.7% per annum. But because you are top of the capital structure backed by the company's assets, your average recovery rates are around 65 cents in the dollar. So that means that your actual credit loss per annum is only 1%. Now, that's pretty modest in the sense that you are getting paid on average about 4.7% above risk-free rates to more than compensate you for investing in those double B corporates and, and mm. below. So yeah, you're 4.7%. Um, you know, when you lose a percent, it comes down to 3.7%. But as an active manager, obviously looking to outperform that, that's just index numbers that I'm, that I'm giving you there. And so for me, it's about whether or not you're getting good risk-adjusted returns. And this asset class, time and time again, provides superior risk-adjusted returns versus uh, traditional bonds, you know, whether it be government or investment grade, and even versus equities. And in the case of the return side, that's driven by that four to five percent spread you're getting above cash to more than compensate for those those um, corporates you're investing in. And on the on the risk side, the low volatility is driven by the floating rate nature, the senior secured status. But whether you think about risk as volatility, frequency of negative returns, or risk of permanent capital loss, time and time again, this asset class has produced low risk outcomes over thirty plus years. Mm. Do you have any, I'm probably pushing you here off the top of your head, um, in periods like the GFC or even the coronavirus, do you have anything, like can you talk about those periods for people? Did those result in like large spikes in default rates or anything like this? Yes. Yeah, so, so in the GFC, which was the worst default period in this asset class history, the defaults were about 10%. But in that instance, the recovery rates were about 50 cents in the dollar. So sometimes in those stressed environments, your recovery rates can be lower than the averages, understandably. But that means that the actual credit loss in the GFC was only 5 
percent mm. uh, at the time in that year, and so that's that's pretty modest in that yeah. situation. Obviously, yeah. equities was down was you know, forty or fifty percent. Um, in other areas, yeah, a lot worse. <laughs> some some people lost you know hundred percent of their capital in some riskier mm. investments. So yeah, to only lose five percent capital, and in even in some of those periods like tech rec or COVID, where either you've had capital loss from defaults that's been quite modest, or you've had mark-to-market volatility on the capital side where the price of the market's traded below fundamentals like it is at the moment. Because of the high level of income through the vast majority of even some of those stress periods, you actually have still got a positive return. So in COVID, um, 5% income, more than offset, and only 2% uh, capital decline in 2020. In the GFC, it's, it, was, it was a negative total return in 08, uh, but a very strong positive return in 09, so it was quickly recovered. Outside of that, prior to the GFC, there wasn't a negative return in this asset class. Mm. So, mm. I, 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 I hear you talk about these numbers and they make so much sense to me, right? Like that makes so much sense. I'm curious then, uh, one question I had, which I sent you in advance is, is there... Like, how can investors get exposure to these things? Like, is there active, actively traded or actively managed ETFs and senior secured loans, or is it typically unlisted? Like, what are the access points for people? Yeah, so there are listed investment vehicles uh, that are accessible. There's uh, we manage one of the biggest uh, bank loan ETFs in the market uh, that's investing in senior secured loans. That particular. Um, ETF is a top 100 replication strategy, whereas the the portfolio that we uh, our investors in Australia invest in through a feeder fund in Australia is actually a, as I mentioned, 375-odd issue is far more diversified uh, and looking to outperform the the index or the market. And we've successfully done that through time mm. uh, with sort of first to second quartile outcomes versus the peer set. So there's, there's a variety of access methods. Personally, I'm a believer in active management in this asset class, particularly given you're dealing with double B rated corporates and below, which can ins- include a material portion of the market in triple C rated mm. yeah. um, companies that you want to make sure you're working with a manager that can assess those risks on a company by company basis and determine whether or not you're getting appropriately re- rewarded for that rather than buying the, the market beta. Yeah. Um, I know that for the fund that you offer here in Australia, it's basically using the strategies both top down and bottom up. Um, can you talk about like do you avoid industries? Like, are there, do you make an active call of well, we're happy to have healthcare or we're happy to have you know Burger King as an example. Mm. We're happy to have fast food and these types of industries. Like, is it is it is that the type of top down mentality that might be applied, or is it something completely different? Yeah, so firstly, the primary focus here is on bottom-up credit selection. There is a top-down element where the investment committee uh, determines our top-down risk positioning by uh, industry or credit rating in terms of the risk that you, that you want to take on within the portfolio, but very much uh, driven by bottom-up analysis through time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of industries, so... All of our funds exclude controversial weapons. Uh, and so coming back to your question around areas, that we want, there's no particular areas that we um, flat out just avoid. 
it's always about the relative risk-adjusted yeah. return potential. So last year, it was like it seemed like a great opportunity. You mentioned before, still a discount applied. The income has been the return predominantly over the past little while. Is that still the like? Do you still see the opportunity now, even with say interest rates having risen so far? Is the opportunity still in senior secured loans there? And how does that like relative to last year? How does that I guess shake out in your mind? <laughs> I'll be honest, the opportunity a year ago was better than what it currently is, but it's still a very strong opportunity right now. So let me explain why that's the case. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, as I mentioned, 92 cents in the dollar. Yep. It was very obvious rates were going to rise. So on an absolute return basis and relative to other segments like bonds and equities, it was a very clear decision to you know want to allocate to this asset class. And that's why I mentioned it was one of the better entry points in it's more than... 30-year history. But as you, as you alluded to there, the primary driver of the strong performance since has been income growth uh, with the price only going up from 92 to 95 cents in the dollar. So at the moment, and the reason why I still think it's a really compelling investment opportunity is that as, from the market perspective, you're now trading at 95 cents in the dollar. The income is above 9% per annum. And so the expected yield over three years is over 10% per annum. So that's for the market. But as an active manager, it's very um, easy to put together a portfolio given current mispricing opportunities that can, we think, do significantly better than that. And so to put some numbers around our portfolio, our income is running at about 10% per annum, currently trading at 90 cents in the dollar and three-year expected yield of over 13% per annum. Hmm. And so that there's some really compelling numbers versus where inflation's at, versus where risk-free rates are at, versus what you expect from equities and bonds over the... I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you know, government bond yields are now 4 or 5%. That's that's good enough for me. And I, I think where, where their inflation is at, retirees need to retain purchasing power. So... I think you need to do better than that. And so to generate sort of 10 to 13% type returns from liquid and credit at the safest part of the capital structure, I think is still uh, highly compelling. And if the, the other comparison I draw to last year, which I think makes it even better now, is because this is a floating rate asset class and your income has gone up in lockstep with rate rises, you now have a significantly better buffer. So when your income is running at 10% per annum, you've got to have pretty significant uh, defaults or you know, credit losses or mark-to-market -market volatility to even half or fully wipe out that income. And coming back to the GFC example I gave, 5% credit loss in the GFC, worst ever in over 30 years of history. If you're getting 10% income, you're only losing half of that in the, in the capital. So you'd actually have to have, and that, this is where the numbers get a bit silly, you'd have to have twice as many defaults as occurred in the GFC um, in order to wipe out your 10% income. And you have to be doing that each year to, to wipe it out. So uh, the bottom line there is that the positive asymmetry in this asset class with some strong you know, 10 to 13% returns with not a lot of downside risk mm. is very favorable versus equities and bonds right now, where in the case of equities, you know, it's more symmetrical. You've got probably as much downside risk as upside risk. And in the case of bonds, you're only getting you know, 5% type yields and you do have downside risk. Can I uh, play devil's advocate here then and ask you to invert this for a second? 
what would happen if, so US enters a recession, say for example, and interest rates do get cut, say whatever, mm -hmm. say it gets cut to 3% or something like this. So interest rates come off the boil a bit. In that type of scenario, what would, I'm not asking you for specifics, but just generally in that type of scenario, how would you expect senior secured loans to perform? Do you mean rates come, come down? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'll be honest again, the best environment for this asset class is a rising rate environment given that it's floating rate. But interestingly, through that more than 30 year history, even during flat or declining rate environments, loans has continued to provide you know, strong positive return outcomes for, for investors. And really, that's really driven by the floating rate feature uh, and because it has less interest rate sensitivity as a result of that and the spread you're getting above cash. So mm -hmm. this is an asset class that's proven through a variety of environments. But if rates uh, do come down, well, first of all, we don't think it, they will. We think they're going to remain elevated for an extended period of time. So you should be able to get that mm -hmm. sort of 10% type income levels for the, the near term. Uh, but if it does come down, then that the rates come down, then you know, you're still getting a solid positive return as a senior secured loan investor. So I mentioned it before, like the idea of having ETFs that may be able to facilitate access to this. But here in Australia, you have a fund as well. Uh, it, on, I think on the website it says $20,000 minimum investment. But is that a wholesale only fund? Like do you have to be a wholesale investor to invest in that? Uh, no, you don't. Yeah, and so you're correct, quoting that minimum investment amount of twenty thousand dollars direct via PDS. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, talking to the website, there's uh, if you go on to the Investigo Australia website and choose your investor type, there's a huge variety of really helpful thought pieces and videos to help educate on the senior secured loan asset class. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of the fund itself, uh, the the fund is recommended by Zenith and Lontech. Available on major platforms, as I said, as you said, 20k minimum daily price, daily redemption, and 100% currency hedged. Okay, that's good. Like it. Um, I guess I've got one final question for you, but before I get to that, and it's a bit of a, more of like a tongue-in-cheek question, a bit of uh, fun, because I asked you for your worst investment at the top of the show. But uh, I think for folks that are listening to this or watching it, um, I think it's a really interesting and compelling opportunity that people should be taking note of because there is that, like you said, there's that big patch of land that sits between what people consider to be growth investments and defensive investments, a whole world out there for people to discover. And we talk a lot about on the show, Ash, about things like private markets versus public markets, about unlisted versus listed. And I think if you are in a space where you're constructing a purely diversified portfolio, these are the opportunities that are, are out there for you and you can look in this middle ground and it's, it's, it's quite fruitful. Um, but my final question is a bit of an easier one, but hopefully it's a bit of fun, is uh, what's been your best investment? Now, I'll say that I normally say you can't say your family or your kids or yourself or something like <laughs> that, which is fair, but like you can say that. But uh, I only say that just because I don't want to f you know, feel compelled to say your kids, even though I'm sure they're wonderful. Um, but what would it be? Look, uh, to be honest, the, the best risk-adjusted return uh, I've recommended to clients was actually Frontiers Industry Fund institutional clients back in the GFs, coming out of the GFC when recommended to take on allocations to the senior skilled loan asset class. But oh, I think right. that's a bit of a, that was a bit of a no brainer at the time. It was a fantastic 
entry point and opportunity. And I think it's a bit of an obvious answer to your question. So let me, let me give you a better one than that. <laughs> the, uh, if it's okay with you, I'll talk about the investment in our family home in, in sure. Blackburn, which uh, is not just in terms of the uh, the monetary value to, to my family. It's got so much more than that. And so a uh, bit of backstory is that we were um, back in 2017, I felt that property market was just overvalued and we're looking to buy and I just couldn't couldn't stomach those prices and so I decided to rent for a couple of years at a townhouse in on the waterfront in, in Docklands and actively and heavily researching the property market and as it was coming down and uh, in Q, early Q2 2019 we found just the ideal family home in, in Blackburn but there was still a lot of uncertainty in, in markets at the time and if you recall uh, Bill Shorten was expected to win the federal election mm. in May 2019 and he was going to get rid of negative gearing and the like. And so I actually, funnily enough, the morning of the election, I think it was the 18th of uh, May back in uh, 2019, I was uh, running along the Yarra in the morning and I, I saw Bill Shorten running the other way, or walking, I should say, with a <laughs> smile on his face. Um, but I don't think he was smiling later on that day when the election result came out. But anyway, long story short, there was... Over the next few days, over that period, there was three things that happened. You had obviously Labor losing the election by surprise. You had APRA coming out and saying that they were going to loosen lending standards and the RBA flagging that they were going to cut rates. And for me, that provided a what I believe would be a flaw to the property market that would ultimately recover. So we, we acted is the bottom line. And so May 2019, a few days after the election, uh, purchased the family home in Blackburn on a 10-month settlement and then... In that 10 months, the property market went up by about 10% while we were um, still renting in Docklands, which was great timing for us. But more importantly, we moved into the house late March 2020 in the first start of the sort of lockdowns in COVID. And that was just um, unbelievable timing in terms of having that additional space. You know, I've got wife and four kids and everybody had their own area. I have a fantastic home office to work from home through that time period and uh, uh, for us it's our it's our happy place um, we often say <laughs> when we're driving in the driveway home sweet home and and for me by far and away that's the best investment I've ever made in our in our family home mm. not not just obviously we've done well out of the um, the value of it but more importantly it's provided fantastic quality of life to me and my family over the last few years and we'll be there for decades I that's think great. as long as I um can still climb the stairs, which I turn 46 on Monday, so hopefully that'll be many years <laughs> to come. Birthday. Oh, thank you. I'll, 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 uh, I'll still be there. Yeah. What do they say? They, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. You're prepared. You, um, you thought about it. And I know the, the feeling of a finance uh, person who looks at the property market and just thinks, how does this make any sense? Uh, I think we've all been there. But a 10-month settlement as well, coming into covid Getting out of Docklands, inner city, going east in Melbourne mm. to where there's some trees and things. What a like luck, skill, all of it mixed yeah. in together, mate. So yeah, it's lucky. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one, mate. And uh, well done to you. So we've chatted a lot about uh, senior secured loans for folks who want to find out more. Go and head to the Invesco website. There's a link in your show notes. Check it out in your podcast player or on YouTube. Ash, thanks for thanks for coming all the way in from uh, Home Sweet Home and, and joining me. Thanks, Alan. It's been an absolute pleasure again.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.